Good morning, Gateway Church. So good to be with you. My name is Carlos Ortiz. I'm our North Campus pastor. And uh, I don't know about you, but that was just some great worship leading right there. We give it up for, the, for our worship team as they just led us this morning. And, you know, I'm pretty transparent about stories and, and life, and, and it's just kind of the only way I know how to be. And, um, you know, there's these highs of life that, that I remember, and all of us remember, just some of those days where you just remember, man, this was a high point, right? Uh, I remember the day I finally graduated college. It was awesome. And I looked out in the audience, and there was my fiance, my, my, and now my wife, Libby. And, and then the day we got married, and just, I mean, just so many markers along the way of these high points of life. And for every high point, there's also a low point. Days that you remember that mark your memory. And sometimes these are the ones that overshadow so many of our, so many of our memories of so much of our life. And so for me, I remember it was the first time I told my parents and acknowledged as a college student that I had been molested as a child. I remember the first time I ever acknowledged that I was an addict and needed help. But then there was a day that happened as I started to follow Jesus uh, later on in college and again, you know, got married to my beautiful wife, Libby. And it was a few months into our marriage and I remember her looking at me in the middle of all the craziness of our life. I remember we read an article about the 10 most stressful things that you ever do in your lifetime. And the recommendation at the end of the article is you should never do more than three of these in one year. And in our first year of marriage, there were eight of them. Because that's how I'm wired. And I remember her looking at me because it wasn't fun anymore. And all these things were happening in my life. And she says, I think we should just get divorced while we can. First year of marriage. Just found out we're pregnant. You see, we were, we were in a new home, in a new city, in a new job, with new friends. Everything was new and now we had a new problem. It wasn't new to me and the stories weren't new to her, but all of the stories I just share with you, all the dysfunction, you know, to just tell somebody I was abused as a, as a child to say, well, I was an addict. Oh, there are stories and years and line after line after line of internal poetry, right? Of prose that go with saying a statement like I'm an addict or saying I have sexual dysfunction. These things have a whole story in and of themselves. And so here I am, my first year of marriage, and all of it is coming up and the new problem is, in, is within me. And then my wife came from a family that had its own set of dysfunction and she worked really hard to stay focused on Jesus. She worked really hard to not do all the things I did. We grew up so opposite. I grew up with a great example of how to follow Jesus and how to do things right and yet I did none of that. And she grew up with a lot of the examples of what not to do and then she live this righteous life. And so here she deserves this man who's put together, who doesn't have all these issues, and she marries me. And along with the marriage, she looked to me, and she goes, I just think we should get divorced. I'll raise this child. There was no sin at the time. There, there was nothing that was going to disqualify us from doing ministry. There was, there was nothing disqualifying us, but there was a story. There was a history, and we forgot 
We forgot that in the romantic whirlwind of our life of meeting each other randomly in New Orleans and, and then and we, and started dating and we got, we met, we started dating, we got engaged and married in all of 12 months and everybody in our life thought it was such a great idea. And we forgot that we chose each other in the romantic whirlwind of our life and that reality finally settles in. And we began to choose narratives that really lined up to us. We began to choose our perspectives instead of the other person that we were living with. We eventually got help. And it took us three years. Three years to reestablish a marriage that we had just started. And what happened is that we began to choose each other, not at the mountaintop. We began to choose each other even in the valleys. And that we would choose each other every single day. Despite our sin and despite our mess, we still chose each other. Now, let's think about the choices that we make in our lives, the collective choices of circumstances, of things that we have to do. You know, you, you graduate high school, you move on to life, and you kind of figure out, where am I going to go to college, and who are my people going to be, and do I get an apartment, do I live on campus? I mean, all these choices that we have early on in life, and, and then we look back, and do we regret some of those choices? Did, did you regret that apartment that looked awesome, that you go and live in it with actual neighbors, with actual parking issues, with actual people that are going to be your landlords and you're like, oh, I shouldn't have picked this place. Right? We begin to have these regrets and yet we forget that sometimes we made these choices. And it reminds me of a Charles Dickens quote from A Christmas Carol. And here's the quote. You are fettered, says Scrooge, trembling. Tell me why. I wear the chain I forged in life replied the ghost. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded on my own, of my own free will and of my own free will, I wore it. See, we make these decisions that create this chain link that we have to carry around in life by the choices that we make. And then sometimes we then value our life or look at our lives or look at other people's lives or look at our loved ones, our friends, or if you're married, maybe it's your spouse or your parents or maybe you're a parent, you're judging your children for the decisions they make. And for sure, if you're a grandparent, you're judging your grandchildren and your grandchildren are judging you on these decisions. Like, do I go to college nowadays or, or do I just start working out of high school? Do I work for a nonprofit because of my passions or do I go into the business world and actually make some money? I mean, do, do I stay single because I like my single life or do I actually choose to get married? Or do I have kids while we're young or do I have kids when we're old or forget that, I don't want any kids. <laughs> and yet the decisions we make, there's somebody across from that decision, an employer, a friend, a loved one judging us based on our decisions. And if we're not careful, our choices, both right and wrong, begin to define us. And there's some, there's some truth to that. But you need to understand that failure, failure in our choices is an event. Failure is not a person. 
the choices we make, even the wins that we have, they're an event, but they're not a person. And for many of us who can string together a lot of wins, we can trick ourselves into thinking that we have this amazing life because we've strung together the right amount of wins. But what happens when you hit your first loss? What happens, young lady, young man, when you've done everything right to get to the right college and you went to the right elementary school and high school and your parents set you up to win and I'm glad that they did and then you go to the right college and then you, then you, you pledge to the fraternity or sorority and you build a network and you get your internship and you go out there and you get your job and you do all the, real, the things you're supposed to do and then you get in the real world and nobody gives a care. Nobody cares. And you're over there doing your fraternity things and they'll be like, who cares? Yeah, but I pledged to the sorority. Who cares? And the reality begins to settle in that if we're not careful, even when we string together good choices, their events, it isn't necessarily a person. So, how does God view these choices? It's really important to understand that God also makes decisions. And through his son Jesus, there, there, there are choices that Jesus made in his earthly life, both personally for himself and how he conducted himself, and yet how, the people he chose to be around. And what we're going to do is we ramp up getting ready for the weekend. It's what we're calling our Easter this weekend, just the weekend. Three days that change the world. As we get ready for the weekend, we're going to walk through the journey of some of the people that Jesus called chosen. I choose you. Maybe they were marginalized. Maybe they were women and had no place in society of value. Or maybe they were people who were tax collectors or fishermen. And yet Jesus deemed them worthy to be chosen, even when society may have marginalized them. They were chosen. So for today, we're going to go to people that Jesus literally chose to be disciples and apostles who would follow him. And we're going to follow this parallel story of two of his apostles. So here we go. We're going to do a lot of reading together today. And so I want you to follow along. If you have your Bibles, open it up. At least follow up on the screen. And we always have this thing called Digging Deeper. It's on our homepage on our website, gatewaychurch.com. At the very bottom, it says Digging Deeper. And all the notes are there. And there's questions for you to dive into, maybe at home or with your group. There's a lot that we're going to cover. So here we go. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. They were fishermen. And Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, he saw two brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father, Zebedee. I love that name. Zebedee. Call me Zeb. I can just imagine how cool that would be. Repairing their nets. Somebody's about to have a baby like, oh, let's name him Zeb. That's kind of cool. You're welcome. And he called them to. And they immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. You see, we, we see this progression as Jesus is going along and he sees people in real life circumstances and situations. And he calls them, follow me. Follow me. And there must have been something about Jesus because I put myself in the story. And if I'm minding my business, can you imagine? You're minding your business, doing your own thing. And somebody comes up to you and says, follow me. You're like, hello. These are the people we warn our children about. Follow me. 
I'll show you how to fish for men. That's kind of creepy. And yet, there had to be something about Jesus that was tangible and real, that pierced through the boundary between their life and his reality. That's how awesome Jesus had to have been for somebody to not think that was just weird. Then we go to Luke chapter 6, verse 12 through 16. And one day soon afterwards, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray. And he prayed to God all night. At daybreak, he called together all of his disciples, people he had already chosen to follow him, and chose 12 of them to be apostles. And apostles, all that means is they were sent out. Right? They weren't just followers. They weren't just disciples. They were being raised up to be sent out to make a difference and to propagate the name of Jesus in the world. Here are their names. Simon. I'm going to skip over some of the descriptions for time's sake. Simon, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew. See? Even Bart Simpson's name's in the Bible, right? Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Simon, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. And so for today's purposes, we're going to pick two of these characters and we're going to walk through their parallel lives and stories. And yet, even though they're parallel, at some point there's a difference. And in that difference, we get to decide how we carried it out. Now, these two, Simon and Judas Iscariot, are known. I mean, they're really famous names, right? St. Peter, and then the name Judas. You know, you really don't hear a lot of people name their kids Judas. Right? You just don't hear it. Why? You're going to hear why. If you've never heard the story of Judas, you're going to know why today people, for the most part, don't name their kids Judas. They were messy men who made a lot of mistakes. And we're going to walk through this. And yet somewhere in there, they were still chosen by Jesus to follow. So let's begin with Peter. You know, Peter's his hot-headed disciple. He's the one that says everything he's thinking. He's the one that when he says it, he says it with such conviction, you just assume he's right. Anybody work with somebody like that? Like you're in an ideation meeting and they throw out an idea. And man, it sounds so good, man. They probably thought through this. No, they just have a million ideas a day. You know, those people who just say everything they're thinking. I mean, this is Peter. He's the one who calls it out, calls it how he sees it, and then he apologizes later on, Right? How many of you would say, I'm being honest, that's me. I'm kind of hot-headed. I say what I'm thinking about. Raise your hand. Raise your, if somebody's next to you, know them, and they're like that, make them raise their hand. That is you. You just say what you're thinking, and you apologize later on. You know, you don't ask for permission. You ask for forgiveness. That is Peter. And here's what we know about Peter. We know the end story. At least many of us do. He was called by Jesus to do amazing things in the world. And yet, look at the laundry list of mistakes that Peter makes. Just a few that I picked out. Ready? Here we go. Mark chapter 10. Peter hates kids. I mean, that's a strong statement. I know. Peter hates kids. I mean, Jesus, I just said, he had this je ne sais quoi. He had this, he had this attribute. He had something about him that people were drawn to him. And so if people were drawn to him, then children were going to be drawn to him. And the children are trying to come to Jesus as you would imagine children being with Jesus. And Jesus in his white perfect robe that probably never gets dirty is sitting on the ground. 
and the children want to come around him. Peter's like, get away. You ain't got time for that. And it wasn't that he hated children. You got to think, in ancient times, children did not have the place in society that they have today. Sometimes I think they have too much place in society, but that's a different story for a different time. But in that age, men ruled everything. And children and women were property of the men. So you could understand for Peter, he was like, they're a nuisance. The pets are in the way. Jesus rebukes him. Matthew 14, Peter attempts to walk on water and he fails. And I love laughing at Peter about it. And then I ask myself, would I have gotten out of the water? You got to remember, this isn't a pool in your backyard. It's the middle of a sea and the waters are raging. And somehow he sees this image, doesn't know what it is, finds out it's Jesus, come walk on the water and nobody else does it, but Peter does it. But he takes his eyes off of Jesus and he fails. Mark chapter nine, he has low self-awareness on the Mount of Transfiguration. There's this moment happening and Peter just says the dumbest thing. And if you have, you're a teacher, you have that kid who says the truth, but he always says it at the wrong time. You know what I'm talking about? I shouldn't share this, but I'm going to share it anyway. I saw something this week on the internet, because I love the internet. And uh, it was this teacher sharing a story about these friends, and there's these first graders, and they were kind of playing, playful with each other. You know, they're six years old, and all of the, all of the friends were tickling one of their friends because they loved her laugh. And her laugh wasn't an appropriate response to what was happening. And the teacher said, why are you laughing like that? Oh, it's just, it's just the noise I make when I'm being tickled. And she goes, yeah, but you're kind of moaning. She goes, oh, well, that's the noise my mom makes when my dad tickles my mom. <laughs> Hashtag lock your door, parents. That would have been Peter. See, I got your attention now. All right, Matthew 17. Peter speaks on behalf of Jesus on taxation. It's a, it's a legal issue and Jesus is right there and Peter answers for Jesus as though Jesus could not respond for himself. I mean, all of us have a sibling or a cousin, right? Who speaks for the family, right? And you're like, I don't agree with you. I don't agree with what you're doing. I did that one time because that used to be me. Of a large family, and we had this one family member. I won't get too descriptive because some of you watch. <laughs> and we had this one family member that a lot of the people in the family didn't really take a liking to. Let's just put it that way. And we were at a family event, a family reunion, mind you, so a lot of people. And this person had a big opinion about everything. And, and this person was against everything we were doing. And I was 16 years old, so I was ready to be the leader of the family. I was ready to be the patriarch at this point. I have seven uncles, but I'm ready to be the leader of the family. And nobody was saying anything to this family member and letting them just say whatever they wanted. And finally, I said, well, if nobody's going to speak up, that means it's my opportunity to speak up for the family. So on behalf of the entire family, I let this person know that nobody around here likes you. <laughs> of course, my mother was very happy about that. This is Peter. He's speaking on behalf of the Savior of the world on a legal matter. And John, on Matthew 16, Peter rejects Jesus' entire purpose for coming to earth. 
You have Jesus saying, I have come and I'm gonna die at a cross and I'm gonna die and I'm gonna die. Peter's like, no, you're not. No, Jesus, you have no idea what you're talking about. And Jesus has to rebuke him. And then John chapter 13, Peter's above following Jesus' instruction and washing of feet. Jesus is serving and he gets on his hands and knees and is washing people's feet. And Peter goes, no, you're not gonna wash my feet. Who does this guy think he is? And then to make it worse, Matthew chapter 26, Peter falls asleep during prayer. Because none of us would ever do that. You see, here's this, this man who's making these mistakes and yet somehow he's still putting himself out there. And then we have Judas Iscariot, the other disciple we're going to compare him to. He's completely different, different personality, and he's not up front. He's behind the scenes. And his gifting is more than likely administration because he's, he handles all of the money for the disciples. So how they're going to find a place to sleep, how they're going to uh, have food. He's in charge of the money. He's behind the scenes. And yet, he, he makes his own mistakes. We're going to go to John chapter 12, verse 1 through 8. And he goes, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, another really cool word, an expensive perfume. And she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Sounds really good, right? It's this moment Jesus is having with Mary. Verse 4. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who, was, who would later betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He's being pragmatic. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in the bag. And Jesus says this, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. A couple things we learn about Judas in this verse 5. He doesn't value the sacrifice that this woman brings. I was in the Middle East a few weeks ago, and um, we'll share more gateway wide of some of the things that we're going to, some cool things we're going to do in the Middle East. But um, to understand the value of perfume, and in ancient times, people would prepare for their burial pretty much when they were adults. By the time they were done being kids, they would start preparing for their burial. You know, when you have the kings of the old times, when somebody became a king, whether it was Egypt or somewhere else in the Middle East, when they were getting ready to become kings, the moment they were king, somebody was preparing for their death. And they would spend years because there was, there was mummification, there was preparing of the body. And so, yes, the rich could, could just do a lot more, but the poor would still prepare for death. And so what this woman brought had a lot of value and somehow Judas didn't appreciate what she brought. In verse six, he was already building a reputation for being a thief. Jesus chose him and Jesus trusted him, but it didn't mean the rest of the disciples trusted him. And Jesus loves you and Jesus wants to do something in you, but it doesn't mean the people around you trust you either. 
He is building this reputation. Then verse eight, it is questionable if he sees the value of Jesus. Here's what we find in Peter and Judas. What they saw in Jesus was the answer and the dream they'd ever wanted. But it was for a dream that Jesus did not intend to fulfill. See, Judas wanted Jesus to be something he never intended to be. See, the, the, the Israelites, the Jewish people wanted a savior to free them from the tyranny of the Romans. And Judas and Peter both wanted Jesus to be something that he didn't intend to be. He came to be chief servant. He came to be the savior of the world through his life and death and resurrection. He didn't come to have a physical fight with the Roman army. And once they started noticing that Jesus wasn't going to bring them freedom from the Romans, but he was going to bring a spiritual freedom for their soul, they began to discount the value of what he brought. And so we see the lack of ability in these two men. We can see how people cast judgment on them and how they cast judgment on others. And yet they have, we have to fully embrace something about these two flawed people. We have to embrace that despite their sin and despite their mess, they were chosen by God. So we've established that they're flawed human beings. And now we see another parallel between these two disciples. Luke chapter 22. This is when Jesus uh, is coming to the end of his earthly ministry. And here we go. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. And Peter followed at a distance. Jesus has already been taken by the Roman soldiers. And Peter's following along in the shadows and when some there had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight and she looked closely at him, being Peter, and said, this man, this man was with Jesus. But he denied it. Woman, I, I, I don't know him, he said. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. You're one of them. You're one of the followers of Jesus. And he says, man, I am not. Verse 59, about an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Can you imagine denying Jesus and all of a sudden there's a pathway between you and him and he's looking right at you in your denial? And before the, he remembered that, the, that Jesus said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Now go to verse 22. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, one of the 12. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. You see the parallels between Peter and Judas? And they were delighted and agreed to give him money. And he consented and watched for an opportunity to hand 
Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. You go down to verse 47. And while he was still speaking, this is being Jesus, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Kiss in that culture, and even in my culture as a Latino, it's, it's a sign of honor. It's a sign of respect. It's saying, I see you. It's, it's a sign of relationship. And so he's saying, Jesus, I see you. I have relationship with you, and I'm stabbing you right in the front, not from the back. It reminds me of Proverbs 27, that wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. So we have two imperfect men, two backstabbing men who are now facing shame and the collective weight of the decisions that they made. So imagine the scene. Imagine that you see have on one side a Peter who left and wept bitterly and he knows the, the gravity of the decision that he made to betray Jesus. He actually made eye contact with the Savior of the world as he's denying him. And on the other side, you have a Judas who's cold, he was calculated, he knew what he was doing, and he was so cold that he was willing to kiss Jesus right before he gave him up for his death. Two men, followers of Jesus, broken, full of mistakes, just like many of us, and both betrayed Jesus. And they have a decision to make. How am I going to respond? And Peter his response, he walks away from his call. After the crucifixion, Peter goes back to being a fisherman. He goes back to his old life. After three years of seeing miracles, after three years of being an apostle, remember, apostle means one who is sent, and instead of walking in his apostleship to be sent, he returns back to his old ways. And Judas Judas also faced the consequence of his, his decision. Matthew chapter 27. Here we go. Verse 3. And when Judas, who betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver that they paid him to the chief priests and the elders. In verse 4, he says, I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. And they say to him, what is that to us? That is your responsibility so Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and he hanged himself. You see, this is where they're still having a parallel. They're still having a visceral response to a mistake, to the sin that they had committed. And if we're not careful, we are overtaken with that shame. We're overtaken by this response. But I gotta tell you something, when grief becomes our master, when grief of our sin, when grief of a situation becomes our master and rules us, it then robs us, of, robs us of the very thing we need, the grace and love of Jesus. And we begin to see everything through the lens of grief. See, they forgot. Especially Judas forgot that despite his sin and his mess, he was chosen by God. Both men took turns making mistakes. 
Both men took turns betraying Jesus. Both men took turns facing their shame. One walked away and one took his life. So what does that mean for you and me? Because if we're going to be honest, there's a, little bit of, there's a little bit of Peter and there's a little bit of Judas in every single one of us. We all make mistakes and we all have sin. We all have things that are part of our life. And how we decide how we're going to handle the issues of our life really are important. But we're all set up for failure. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy garments, and all of us wither like a leaf, and, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And yet all of us need the covering that comes from knowing who Jesus is. Whether we're exploring faith for the first time or we've known Jesus for decades, all of us need to be covered in the fullness of who Jesus is, that he came to live in this earth a sinless life. And then he still went to a cross carrying our burden, our shame on his body. And then he rose again. That's what we celebrate in a few weeks at Easter. It's the resurrection of who Jesus is. And that we are raised up in him. Despite our sin. Despite our shame. Despite the things that would keep us in the ground. Despite the things that want to hold us down in this life. This is salvation. That when Jesus comes with his hope and life. And because of our repentance, we are saved of ourselves. We're saved from the chains that we have strung and made together. This is salvation. Isaiah 61 says this, And I will rejoice greatly in the Lord, and my soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with the garland, as a bride adorns herself with jewels, because despite your sin and your mess, you are chosen by God. Don't give up. Some of you want to give up, but don't give up. Some of you want to give in. Sometimes literally you want to give in, just like Judas did. But I'm saying, don't do it. Don't give up. Some of us have walked away from maybe what we were supposed to do, and yet there's still hope, there's still restoration, because in John 21, Jesus, Jesus seeks out Peter, and he says this, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, well, feed my lambs. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then take care of my sheep. He's calling him back to his true calling. And the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt. See, his old patterns were coming up. Peter was hurt that Jesus would ask him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. In John 21, Jesus restores Peter to his true calling. He may have walked away, but he didn't give up. He may have gone back to some old patterns, but he didn't give up. And when you come in contact with Jesus, anything can be restored. It's funny how Jesus kept bringing him back to this point of pain for him because he asked him three times the way he denied Jesus three times. And, and I gotta be honest, you see God sometimes bring us, 
brings us back to that pain point. So not to bring shame to us so we can find healing in the very place that almost destroyed us. I had to go back and do work around what happened to me as a child when I was abused. And, I, and people, I, I could live as though it never happened, but God allowed me for years to go back to that pain point so it could be healed and restored. So now it has no weight over me. Some of us, some of us, listen, some of us have drinking issues or drug issues and we want to just have a new life and move forward. No, no, I, got, I promise you, God's going to have you come back to that point of hurt and the thing that hurt you so you can find healing so that you can cast off shame and you can find a place of repentance so you can find hope in who Jesus is because you are chosen. And even though you're chosen, you still have a choice. You can choose repentance, which is this nudging in your soul by the one who created you to bring you into relationship. Or we can choose shame, which is the enemy of your soul who's convincing you you have no worth and isolates one's of God. One is not. So here's the question I want you to ponder. What is currently keeping you from the fullness of God's love and grace today. What is it? Is it a past decision? Is it a current decision you're living in? What is keeping you from the fullness? And whatever it is, would we walk a path of repentance? God, I acknowledge it. I don't want to, but I acknowledge it because it's drawing me in. It's what my soul desires. I'm going to acknowledge that thing. Or is it shame that says I'm going to self-preserve? My defense mechanisms are going to kick in. And yet as you do this, you isolate yourself over time. I can tell you the answer. God wants you to repent. Why? Because there's salvation. There's salvation in who Jesus is because despite your sin and your mess, you are chosen. Would you close your eyes, whether you're watching online or in, just close your eyes. This is not a spiritual thing. just more for you to have a moment of self-reflection. Today, if you would say, today's my day of salvation, the day I need to acknowledge that I'm in need of a Savior. I'm in need of the one who helps me cast off the sin and the shame of my life the chains that I've been carrying, I'm ready today to cast that off. Today, if you'd say, I want today to be the the day that I remember is the day I gave it to Jesus. And I'm acknowledging I need Jesus. The way Peter needs Jesus. Will you just raise your hand where you're at? There's nobody looking around. I see hands, awesome. Yep, keep it up. Just keep it up real quick. See several of you. If you're online, it's okay. Put your hands down. Thank you for that acknowledgement. We're with you. Most of us in this room had to make that decision one day where we're finally saying, I'm not going to walk in shame anymore. I'm going to walk in repentance. And repentance brings it to God, the one who created and formed me. So God, thank you for my brothers and sisters. That at least 20 or so people in the room alone decided to raise their hands and said, I am in need of a Savior. Would you draw us in? So we don't walk in shame and we don't walk in isolation. That we would be reminded that we need you more than ever. It's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.